join me in prayer. Our Father, thank you that all heaven and earth join in the praises of our glorious King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that this morning we could join with the angels in heaven and the intersection between heaven and earth and unite our voices in praise around that beautiful name, the name above every name. For it is in the name of Jesus that we are saved. It is in the name of Jesus that our sins are forgiven. It is in the name of Jesus that we are raised from the dead. It is in the name of Jesus that we are gloriously placed in an eternal relationship with God the Father. So, Lord, I pray today as we uh, together peer into the mystery of God in salvation through Jesus Christ, that truly our hearts will be stirred and our lives will be affected. For our good and your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So whether we realize it or not, like it or not, to understand the immense value of the promises of God, we need to spend time in the wilderness. Depending on circumstances, we will either unwisely choose the wilderness by our bad actions, or be exiled or chased there by God in the way Jesus was chased into the wilderness early in his ministry. Either way, as Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, writes, everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. That's from his book, Leap Over the Wall, story is his book on David. And of course, we, we usually want to hurry out of the wilderness, but God is not in the same hurry that we are, because there are lessons to be learned in silence and in solitude and in aloneness that we otherwise could not learn. In fact, we couldn't learn some of, about some of the promises or what they mean without that. For instance, the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you cannot be learned in a crowd. So there are lessons to be learned, but there's also dangers to escape in the wilderness. We learn that we aren't in control of a single thing. In March 2020, most of the world was plunged into the wilderness. 
a very unfamiliar place for most of us. We were all going along fine. Life was patterned, it was predictable, manageable, and then bam, everything changed. For others, it wasn't that big of a change because they were already deeply steeped in wilderness or had been recently. Perhaps a health change or a relationship wilderness crisis or perhaps a job crisis. Cruising along and then bam, everything changes. We're plunged into something we don't know, we don't understand. It's unfamiliar territory. We're inexperienced. It's out of control. It was kind of uh, amusing how quickly we put manageable terminology and business terminology to this wilderness of the pandemic when we talked about, well, we'll just pivot. Are you tired of hearing that word? Pivot? Never heard it before except in basketball. All of a sudden, it's a new business term. Because, after all, humans can manage everything. We just pivot. We can't admit we're, we're, not, we're not in control. We can't admit that. This feels new to us, doesn't it? For, at least for some of us. But God specializes in allowing us to be chased into wilderness, or we foolishly, painfully choose wilderness, and he offers us exit ramps out of the wilderness. Maybe not out of the situation, maybe not out of the circumstance, just yet. But there it is, an oasis of God's promises. So it's to this that I want to build a sermon series over the next number of months, maybe till the end of January even. I'm not sure yet. There are a lot of promises in God's word. We might be able to teach on promises until Jesus comes back. We might be anyway. Who knows? But I want to build a sermon series around that because we need an off-ramp from the wilderness. Or at least we need, need to know where one is. We need a spiritual out. If not circumstantial, we certainly need something like the promises of God. Well, we spend time in the wilderness. We're not intended to remain there. And I think that's the storyline of the scripture. We're not intended. We were not made to remain in the wilderness. So I want to build a case for the fact that the wilderness we choose exists because of our sin, the sins of greed and lust and idolatry. It is our sin that invites suffering into our lives, into our world, into my world, into your world. We damage each other. People we have been pleasantly assigned to love, we hurt through sin. God uses the harshness of, of wilderness to grab our attention. Because the goal is that we might run from the wilderness into the promises of God. That's what this series is about.
for refuge. So let's discover together what we have from God, who we have in God, and what he offers. Are you ready? I think this will be important for us in this next season. I really do. I think we need this. I think it will help us. And I think we'll grow strong and healthy. So remember, everybody at some point, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends some time in the wilderness. Everybody. I won't take a show of hands, but has anybody here never been in the wilderness? I'm guessing not. So whether we're in or out, God has given us his precious promises. That's what... Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 about the precious promises of God. And they are precious. And we are intended to enter into his promises for rescue and for refuge and for conquest. No doubt in your lives you've had people promise you things. They've overpromised and underdelivered, and perhaps you're you're jaded even. Perhaps you're disappointed. But I can assure you, and I, and I know that we can testify together to one another that God never disappoints us with his promises. God never overpromises and underdelivers, not ever. In fact, the, the fulfillment of prophecy in the scriptures reminds us that what God promises, he will fulfill. And what he has promised you but not yet fulfilled, he will. Uh, one of my favorite sections, just uh, there's so many, but, uh, but a favorite section for me in Isaiah is Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I've just got some f- phrases from those three verses that I want to share with you. I think they're on screen. And it goes like this. I am God who declares the end from the beginning. The dots in between mean I'm leaving things out. Who says, my purpose will stand. By the way, that's a singular word. My one purpose will stand. Also, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I have formulated it. Indeed, I will accomplish it. Isn't that powerful stuff from God? He In fact, God stakes his reputation as God on his ability to come good on his promises. That's literally what God is doing here. God assures us that he's in total control. And he has announced in advance what we can be sure will happen. And we have witnessed what will happen. We are somewhere down the line of redemption history. We have seen what God has and can do. But remember, at the early stages, people hadn't seen as much as we've seen. They hadn't experienced as much as we've experienced. And I want to point out to you that all of the promises, based on just this couple of verses, and and so much more that we know, all of the promises of God are sourced in His single purpose. That's why I mentioned to you that it's it's a singular word, my purpose. God has one singular purpose. It is his promise. And what is his promise? It's the promise of Jesus Christ, who will reconcile the world to God by his grace and for his glory. 
That's why we, when we read in, in the book of Romans and we witness with our own, uh, our, our own lives that all of creation is groaning in anticipation and waiting for the redemption, the final redemption of those who are called to Christ. Every hurricane, every earthquake, every tornado, every forest fire, every, every evidence like that of creation is, is a reminder to all of us of the groaning of all of creation waiting to come under the full rule and reign of God, waiting for the full redemption of those who've been called to Christ. And our reminders to us of this single purpose of God to bring his creation back to the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. So I, this morning, um, so for the, the purpose of this series, I, I want to show you that the promise, the promise of Jesus Christ, will be the center axle from which all the other promises of God fan, and from which we get all of our meaning and understanding of God's promises. I want to I want to tie together this morning in one quick sweep your Bible. I want to start in Genesis and work our way to Corinthians. It sounds like a big task, but I'm only going to stop three times in three places. And I think that'll be enough to help you to see the sweep of God's single purpose, the promise that, is, that, that ties your, your Bible together, and it will help us to understand or see how we know what God defines as the promise, from which all of the other promises of God are shaped. And this should help us as we study the promises of God going forward in these weeks to understand the parameters, the understanding, the how, how promises are shaped and what they're to mean in Christ. Hopefully this will help us. So I wanna share with you just three wilderness warning labels today that God's promise deals with. Three wilderness warning labels, all right? It's the scriptural storyline of wilderness to promise. God's journey from, wilder, from our wilderness that we have chosen through our sin to pro the promises of God. And it starts off by being revealed in the Garden of Eden. It's proposed in eternity past, by the way. We need to understand that, that God's single purpose was not an adjustment on the basis of what people did. God's single purpose was crafted by God before the foundation of time, before the creation of man. In other words, God knew in the creation of humanity that we would be broken in very short order before he even made us. So the promise of Messiah, the promise of Jesus Christ, the promises of God are not adjustments as God goes along. They are God's single purpose in bringing him glory, okay? So the first warning label 
because I'm just assuming that most of us are familiar with, I don't have time to, to deal with the intricacies of the Garden of Eden, but I'm assuming that most of us are fully aware that the big storyline of the Garden of Eden is the creation of Adam and Eve and the responsibility they had given by God to not eat of the tree of life and the tree of, good, uh, of, the, of knowledge of good and evil. They were told they could eat from everything, anything, but they couldn't eat there. Eat and die. The first wilderness warning labeled by God to the first created humans was eat and die. It's almost un unimaginable, I think, to most of us when you had the Adam and Eve in the garden and, and God states to them that the ingesting of the fruit of certain trees, two certain trees, would uh, result in their death, would be fatal, you would, one would think that it would be enough. Say, well, I'm not going to touch that. I have all kinds of other options. I'm not touching that because I'll die. And, and we think, how, how foolish of them to do that until we come to terms with our own lives and our own understanding of the scriptures when we realize that the New Testament states the paycheck for sin or the wages of sin is what? Death. And what do we do day by day? Sin. We've told the paycheck of death is sin, yet we do it. Uh, perhaps Adam and Eve thought like we think. God will get over it. I, I don't know what we think. I don't know why we sin. I don't know why you sin. I don't know why I sin. I don't. But maybe we think, well, God will just get over it. Maybe we just assume or presume upon God's grace. Maybe they were presuming upon God's grace. Now, we know that they were induced to sin. There was some extra stuff going on there with the serpent. I wonder if they, upon ingesting the fruit, sat around looking at each other worried about whether or not they were going to die. And when, were, when are we going to die? Isn't that what sin does to us? We do something and we wonder now. Now, now we have to live with anxiety. Now we have to live with worry. We don't know what now is going to happen. We don't know what this is going to lead to. We don't know who this is going to hurt. We don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know what God is going to do with us. Why would we do such a thing? But we do. Well, God trounces the tempter. Verse 14, because you have done this, Genesis 3, cursed are you above all the livestock, all the wild animals. You'll crawl in your belly. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. The serpent, the serpent, as opposed to the other animals. It's the definite article there leads us to this one serpent, this serpent, the serpent, this, this entity. You'll crawl on your belly. Now, by the way, that God had already made crawling Creatures, already described in Genesis 1, and they were deemed good. So the crawling isn't the curse. It's, in fact, this directed at this particular entity that you will now have an existence of humiliation and subjection. You will eat dust. That's not the 
prescribed diet now of that particular entity, but rather a description of the life type of this serpent the, would be um, the scope of, of his existence would be grave-like, dust to dust, death-like. But to almost the ex- extreme opposite of trouncing the tempter, God graces the fallen. It's amazing to us when we read this. We read here in verse 15 what God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You know what this is called, this verse 15? Our speaker last week named it, Dave named it, the, don't be timid, the Proto-Evangelium. Little bit of Latin for you. The first introduction to us of the Evangel, the good news. Can you imagine on the on the heels of this heinous sin that would throw all of humanity into fallenness and brokenness and hurt and pain and suffering, God offers grace. It's a, it's a, there are not enough human superlatives to describe what this, what this verse unfolds. We're looking at something that was given to man six or 7,000 years ago, depending on whether you're short earth or long earth. 6,000 6, years short earth, 7,000 years long earth. <laughs> but here it is, here it is for us. And, and I want to break it down for you so you see what the promise here is. I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent and the woman, humanity, and between your seed, those who will be offspring of yours, following your death-like ways, grave-like ways, and her seed, her offspring, the offspring of Eve. And then it states something remarkable. He, singular masculine personal pronoun, he will crush your head, the serpent, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. Now this breaks all of the rules of Hebrew and Greek grammar because the primacy of antecedent in terms of Hebrew grammar and and Greek grammar would require that this sentence be completed Her offspring, they will crush your head. But the Hebrew text is, he will crush your head, because that's what God actually said. And when the the Greek grammarians in the second and third BC determined to translate this section of scripture, they also broke with grammar and stayed with truth and translated this he. Now, 
Now, the, the amazing thing of this is, for us, we look at this, and when we read this, we know that this is the first promise of Jesus Christ. We know that. We know this is the promise of Calvary. We know that. But I'm talking now about people translating two or 300 years before Jesus who had not yet experienced Messiah, broke with grammar, and called it he, called him he will crush your head. This is fascinating. Perhaps we, perhaps they as we noticed that what Eve said in Genesis chapter four, when she, when she gave birth to her firstborn named Cain, Genesis 4, 1, she says there literally, although not translated this way, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Eve understood Genesis 15, and the word Lord here is Yahweh. Eve understood Genesis 15, the promises of Genesis 15, the he, to, be, to literally be Yahweh. She actually thought the birth of her son was the promise of her redemption. That's, that's incredibly amazing. You have this near interpretation, the Bible interprets itself, of this promise. I've spent a fair, fair bit of time here because this really sets up our whole series is to understand what is the single purpose of God and what is the promise of that single purpose. It's established for us here in Genesis 3.15. God announced in the Garden of Eden the promise that he would reconcile the world to himself through her seed by crushing the head of evil and all his works. This is an amazing offer of grace to us. And when the disciples had been sent out by Jesus in Luke chapter 10, and they, were, they came back to report on all that had happened, and they were so excited, and, and they, couldn't, they, they couldn't even catch their breath as they came to Jesus and said, you need to know that the demons are even subject to us, as if Jesus wouldn't know. And Jesus was, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. I was there, guys, when God declared that I would crush his head. And of course, in Revelation, we see it unfold as the, the final fall of Satan and his doom. So what was Jesus' counteroffer to this eat and die in the Garden of Eden? As Jesus was proclaiming his message uh, among the people of the first century, in John chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What was he, was he teaching about cannibalism, that we'd literally eat Jesus? No, of course not. He, he goes on to explain in that text that the ones who eat my flesh and drink my blood are those who abide in me. Those who truly belong to me. Those who truly know me. What's the counter offer of Jesus here? Jesus counters the fatal dining habits of Adam and Eve 
with life-giving food called Jesus Christ. That's the evangelium. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And I will raise him up in the last day. Those who abide in me, we consume him. He is our life. He is the counter to eat and die in the Garden of Eden. In the absence of responding to Jesus, the promise of death from the Garden of Eden rests on you. But in Jesus, that fatal dining uh, habit of Eden is countered by Jesus in life-giving food. From wilderness of death to the promise of life. So, What's warning labels? So, so let me ask you a question out of this section. Are you abiding in him? Are you abiding in Christ? The only counter to eat and die is to abide in Christ and live. The warning label number two, wilderness warning label number two, curse and be cursed. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. I only want to take a few minutes here. Genesis 12 One to three, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Warning label, curse and be cursed. The promise weaves its way now now through time. And in you, the promise is made to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed. From me, Abraham says, yes, from you. One called out from a family of pagan moon worshipers. God in his grace and his mercy calls out Abraham to be a particular people because there had been a promise, there had been a prophecy A promise attached to a prophecy in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26. And in that prophecy, God had stated that God would first dwell in the tents of Shem. In the tents of Shem. Not Japheth. We're talking about the sons of Noah now. Not Japheth. Not Ham, who would be the father of the Canaanites, but rather in Shem. Who is Shem? Shem is the Semites. The Jews. That's why Jesus at the, at the well with the Samaritan woman said to her, salvation comes through the Jews. This was the promise of God. So here we have this continuation of this promise of Messiah. It would be a son. He, Genesis 3.15. Now we know born to a Semite. Genesis 9.26. Named Abram was to form a nation to advance the promise of God in Christ Jesus. God's purposes in election picked a people to carry the promise to the world. Through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. It's a missionary adventure. This, in fact, in Genesis 12, is the Old Testament Great Commission. God has always been a sending God, a missionary God, a God who wants the revelation of God to go to the ends of the earth. God has always wanted everyone to know him and to, to, be, sa- to be saved, to, to, to worship him. God called out a people through whom he would reconcile the world to himself who would carry her seed, the seed of, 
of, of Eve, and he would bless the world in you, Abraham. Through you, through the nation, a redeemer would come. And we, the church now, have been given this same call, the same call of Abraham. We are, call, we are a called out people in the same way as they were a called out people. They were a called out people to bring us the Messiah. We are a called out people to take the message of Messiah to the world. There's been a handoff to us from the people who brought us the Messiah to take the message of Messiah to the world. That's our assignment. And those, it says here in the text, who bless you, uh, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. We now stand in as the people of God responsible to take the message to the world. And so the same promises made to Abraham are the promises made to us. In Galatians 3.29, the Apostle Paul said to the, Gentile, the new Gentile church there, you are Abraham's offspring. The church of Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham. We now carry the message. And, the, and, and note this, listen, listen, brothers and sisters, note this. Those who blessed the people of God Abraham, in Abraham's day were blessed by God. Those who cursed them were cursed by God. This transference has taken now to the church. Those who bless the church, God will bless. Those who curse the church, God will curse. May, may it not be said of any of us who are in the church that we are cursing our brothers and sisters in the church, ever. Christ what was the antidote to the wilderness warning of curse and be cursed. Well, Christ redeemed us from the curse, Genesis 3.13, of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Who, for it is written, cursed is everyone who, who is hanged on a tree. To despise the one, the point that's being made here by God is to despise the one who blessed the people. Or to despise the people God has blessed is to despise the one who has blessed them. So to despise the promise of rescue from fatal fallenness is to choose the consequences which are death. So my question to you this morning is this, have you received the exchange of the curse of the law, those who curse God, for the blessings of God's salvation in Christ? Because the only way out of spiritual wilderness is through Jesus Christ, the promise of God, the promised Redeemer, who became a substitutionary sacrifice Punishment on our behalf. So there's a final warning label, wilderness warning label this morning, and it comes out of, we'll flip now to the New Testament. Come with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The warning label is this. The wilderness warning label is this. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. All of the promises of God are yes in Christ. We need to build some contest text here for you to see the, the glorious theology that's presented here. The context is a promised visit of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. 
He had already visited them and he promised them another visit and it didn't materialize and they're now upset with him. In fact, if you read the epistles of Paul, you will find out that he was in deep weeds a lot of time for, with people. It, it wasn't a fun ministry necessarily that Paul had. It was kind of a real ministry, a normal ministry. The people were, well, let's, shall we say that, that the sheep are wonderful and cuddly and fluffy and warm and all of that, but they do bite. And he got bit a lot. And he's bit here. Because the context is the mixture of money and ministry. And that mixture is fraught with trouble. In fact, that mixture brings out the best in Christians and it brings out the worst in Christians. Money and ministry. It brings out the best in the, sen in the sense that, that, that God promises rich blessings for those who are generous in giving to the mission. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1, Matthew 28. God richly blesses those who bless his ministry. But there is... There is no end of trouble with phonies and frauds and misers and skeptics and, and you name it. And in this case, they were mad at Paul because, and they said he was fickle and waffling. You know, are you coming, you're not coming. You know, one minute, you know, you tell us you're coming, then you're not coming. And, and they were upset with him because they said, the only reason you really want to come to us for two trips is you just want to, we just want to weasel more money out of us. Because he, he, was, he was coming to collect an offering for the church of Jerusalem. He told them that. And, and he told them that because salvation had come from Jerusalem. Salvation had come from the Jews. The only reason a Corinthian church existed was because of the rich grace of God in Christ Jesus. And the Jews had carried the freight and brought Messiah. And, and, and now they're in trouble and they need help. And the church should help them. And Paul was trying to make the point that it's to your benefit. In fact, he says here, you know, because I was confident of this in verse 15, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. You might benefit, not so I'd dig money out of you and you'd not want to see me coming, but that you would benefit and be happy. Oh, great, we get to give twice. <laughs> That's the cheerful giving that God talks about and that Paul talks about in the Corinthian uh, epistle. And so they said, you're waffling, you know, you're just, you're just acting worldly. And, and you need to know a little bit about the tradition of, of, of the time, among the Jews of the time. In order to authenticate something that you said was your, your yes or your no, you had to say it twice. If, if, I, if, I, if I said to Steve down here, Steve, yes, I'm coming to see you, but I only said it like that, then you didn't need to take my word for it at all because I only said, yes, I'm coming to see you. If I said, Steve, yes, yes, I'm, yes, yes, I'm coming to see you, Steve, then it's yes. If I say, no, I won't do this, well, it didn't necessarily mean no until I said, no, no, I won't do this. So, so when we're talking about, you know, uh, slippery, and, and they're criticizing Paul for being slippery, the truth of the matter is, they were incredibly slippery. And Paul goes on to use this moment to, to shed light, perhaps uh, uh, the best New Testament 
light on promised theology that we have, whereby he says, no, I'm acting like God. When God says something to you, you can take it to the bank. God's yes is yes. God's no is no. You never have to wonder about it. He doesn't have to say it twice for it to be true. If God says it, it's yes. And he says, and while I'm talking to you about this, I just want to let you know that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. You can count on the promises of God. And, and no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And, and if we follow the storyline, we have this, this excellent reality in the New Testament whereby we're tracking with a son is promised in Genesis 3.15, born to a Semenite promised in Genesis 9.26, Luke 1, 26, 35 tells us her name is Mary. According to the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, in Genesis 22, 16 to 18, is the promise from which all other promises find meaning. And here we are. It all comes together. The apostles now confirm what has been purposed before the foundation of the world, that all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and no other. They are all yes in Jesus. Jesus sets the boundaries, the context, the parameters, the meaning of all of God's promises. As Walt Kaiser says in Toward an Old Testament Theology, there is no event in Israel's history or promise granted to God's people that does not find its significance or fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the turning point of world history. And we have this amazing reality whereby in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 14, we are told there that God raised Jesus from the dead and, and he will raise us as well. And in chapter 5, verse 10, it talks about judgment of the world. In between the work that Christ did for us at Calvary and raised from the dead at Calvary, and the judgment of God on sin for those who eat and die, in between that is the mercy of God. We are living in the time of the mercy of God between the offer of salvation, the crushing of Satan, and the judgment upon those who curse that reality. And we are called to a single purpose as God's people, to carry the promise of God's mercy to everyone who will respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the mercy of God. The good news is the mercy of God. Now listen, beloved, every one of these promises of God are yes in Christ. In Christ, they are yes to you. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the promises of God are not for you, with the exception of a few general promises that God has made to everyone. Like, for instance, the rainbow is a reminder that God, to all of creation, that God will not flood the world again. But we're talking about, and, and of course the general promise that God makes that whosoever will may come. 
that whoever receives Jesus Christ, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. That promise applies to those who don't have Christ. But for the most part, the promises of God, i.e., I will never leave you or forsake you, is for those in Christ alone. If you don't have Christ, then that promise is not for you. So have you received the seal of ownership in your life, the Spirit of God, the first installment of what is yet to come and the present benefit of the promises of God? Because that's what salvation is about, is receiving Jesus Christ, receiving the Spirit of Christ. That's the offer that's been given to us here in the promises of God. This first installment of the Holy Spirit of God moving into our lives and teaching us to live godly lives gives us the best hint at what eternity is all about. Because the first installment of God is to come close, is to move into our lives. The first installment is intimacy with God, closeness with God which tells us that eternity, which will be the fullness of this, will be our intimate relationship with the God of the universe, with no more barriers, no more obstacles, no more sin to get in the way, nothing like that, everything cleared away, to only have the ultimate intimacy with the living God of the universe. That's what eternity is for us because of the promise of Jesus Christ. Your destination is not wilderness. It is not wilderness, but promise. The promise of peace with God through Jesus Christ. From the curse of death in the garden to yes in Christ through the promises of salvation. So let me ask you, have you chosen by your bad behavior wilderness because of your disobedience? There is rescue in Christ. Have you, have you been chased into the wilderness by God? Know this, he is sharpening your spiritual senses so that you will hear him more clearly and depend on him more fully. Won't you move from the wilderness into the promises of God? Father, I, I thank you for your word to us today. I thank you for your mission in our lives. I thank you for the mission you've given to us and, oh, Lord, my prayer is that there would be no one here who has not come to embrace the promise of Jesus Christ and his salvation. And I pray, Lord, for your, your uh, beloved children, your people. I pray, oh, God, that we would enter into the promises of God and not seek to accomplish our lives or or navigate our lives or escape from the wilderness using, uh, depending on other things. Oh Lord, may we depend upon you, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can I leave us with two questions to answer depending on your situation with the Lord? And the first is this, have you welcomed the promise of Jesus Christ in your life? Because the word of God says in John 1:12, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
Most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Maybe you've been putting it off, whether you're here with us today or you're watching us online. I would encourage you to turn it into a will statement. I will receive Jesus Christ right now. And he will become your savior and your Lord. That's the promise of God. I want to ask a second question, though. Perhaps you find yourself in the wilderness and you, you know the Lord and you love him. But you haven't been relying on his promises. You've been looking to all kinds of other things for comfort. Can I encourage you to come back to true north? It's the promises of God and all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ that will enable you to learn the lessons you need to learn in the wilderness and experience all that God has for you. So how about an I will statement if you find yourself there? I will rely on the promises of God and I won't look elsewhere for my help. These two questions, these two statements need to be dealt with today. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to Christ. I pray, pray, oh God, for those who might be listening or even here who've never, ever received the salvation that is available to anyone in Christ Jesus. I pray for those, Lord, who are going through a really tough situation and find themselves looking all over for answers and solutions. Lord, may we focus our attention on the promises of God and what you are teaching us in these days. Everything else out there is just activity. Our life is focused on a single purpose the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ in our life and in the lives of the people around us. May we camp there, O oh God, for Jesus' sake, I pray, amen.